Mark 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And, the, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You can have a seat. Have you ever been really thoroughly scared in your life? I mean, really afraid. Maybe, maybe you woke up in, in a sweat from a bad dream, right? Woke up with a start. I had a reoccurring dream when I was a kid. I can still remember it 30 years later. Uh, 30 years since I've ever had it, I can still remember it specifically, all the things that happened to it. Every, every once in a while, I'd have the same dream, and I would wake up frightened. I'm not going to tell you what the dream was about for fear that someone might play a joke on me at some point. Maybe, maybe you've been really scared watching a movie before, a scary movie. I, I hate scary movies. I, I don't understand if, if I wake up from a bad dream afraid and it's not a good feeling, why would I want to feel that when I'm awake? Like, why would I choose that, right? I don't understand people who enjoy scary movies, but maybe you like that. Maybe you've been really scared watching a scary movie. Or maybe 
Maybe you've had a near-death experience before that really shook you. I know I've had, I've been in a couple of car accidents where I thought for that split second, I am going to die. This is it. I'm done. But you know, with bad dreams, you wake up and you realize that's, it wasn't reality. With movies, you know that's not true. That's not reality. And typically, the things that happen in scary movies are so far-fetched. You know, that'll never happen. Near-death experiences even. Now, that's, that's pretty scary, but, but they could be over as quickly as they began, right? Sometimes you don't even realize how scary they are until after the fact when you look back and you go, oh, my goodness, I should have been way more frightened than I, than I was. No, I'll tell you, those are kind of scary in the, like, I'm going to die kind of way. But what's truly frightening, what's terrifying is when you're scared in the, what does this mean for my life moving forward kind of way? You know what I mean? Have you ever been scared like that? An example Getting married, that's scary, right? Those of you who have been married, tell me, I mean, tell me that you weren't at some point before you got married straight up frightened. Uh, maybe it's just me. I love my wife. I loved her before we were married. I love her now. But sometime after the freshman, uh, freshness of engagement like got, like wore off, and before, like right before the, the ceremony when you can't really think about anything but all the things you need to do, like that, somewhere in the middle there, there was a period of time where I was straight up afraid. Where I thought to myself, oh heavens, this is it. What is going to happen? What will this mean? This is a, an enormously major turn in the road of my life. There is no going back. There's there's no part of my life that isn't going to change now. That kind of afraid. Have you ever felt that? As much as I love my wife, that's scary. And I've got a, I've got a theory that I want to share with you this morning. A, a bold statement, really. I think for most of you, you are afraid of Jesus. You may not want to admit it, but I think when it really comes down to it, for most of you, you are afraid of Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about the toned down, uh, softened edges, one-sided homeboy Jesus that we often talk about in American Christian culture. You know, you turn on the radio and it's like, yay, Jesus. Jesus is so encouraging. Not that Jesus. Okay. Now, as we've gone through the book of Mark, we've seen a tender and compassionate side of Christ. We have. But I'm talking about the Son of God, demon-expelling, storm-controlling, temple-clearing, get-behind-me-Satan Jesus that we've seen. We don't want to talk about that Jesus often. We want to pick and choose the 
character qualities we like in Jesus that leave us feeling warm and fuzzy like he's wrapped us in a soft blanket. But we'd rather avoid the reality that with the power to comfort us also comes the power to condemn, also comes the power to control. We want to avoid the Brillo pad, Jesus, that plans to scrub away the junk from our life, right? Because that's, that's not very comfortable. And I think when it comes down to it, you are afraid of Jesus. You're afraid of the resurrection and what that means. And you're afraid of his kingdom. And I, I could be wrong. But you can ask Amanda, that rarely happens. It's a joke. Marriage jokes, yay. No, I think you're, I think, I think you are, I think we are afraid of all of what, who Jesus is and what this passage this morning is about. We're afraid of what all of that means. As we wrap up the book of Mark, we look at these three, these, these events that he records from the moment of Jesus' death and then his burial and his resurrection. There's three scenes that happen here, and in each scene we see an element of fear in the people who are watching what's happening. The first and the last scene we see fear in these three women, the same three women described in both scenes who love Jesus dearly. I mean, they really love Jesus. They care about Jesus. They've followed Jesus. They've taken care of him when he needed things. He, whenever he was in Galilee, it says that they cared for his every need. You cannot deny their love for him. Yet they're afraid. And then in the middle, we find this story about some unexpected courage from an unexpected character, Joseph. A Pharisee, the last guy we'd expect. So I want to look at these three scenes, and I want us to consider what all of this means for us today as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So look with me at this first scene. Here's what's happening. If you don't remember, Jesus has just died. He's just died on the cross, and the centurion who's standing there right beside him says, surely this is the Son of God. You remember in the very first verse of Mark, Mark declares Jesus as the Son of God. But in the background, if you can imagine with me, we see Jesus on the cross. We see the centurion standing here saying that, and in the background, back behind, way in the distance, on the, on the next hill, we see some women standing. We know from the other Gospels that some of Jesus' followers were quite close, close enough for Jesus to speak to them as he hung on the cross. And yet these gals, they stand back at a healthy distance. Were they afraid of seeing the detail of Jesus' death, the death of the man that they loved? Were they afraid of coming too close and being associated with him like Peter was? Think about this. Verse 41. 
I said. It says that these women followed him and ministered to him, that Jesus, he had no home. And so as he traveled around, he was dependent on others. And whenever he came into Galilee, these women took care of him, took care of his disciples. These gals did not lack devotion or love or willingness to serve in whatever capacity was needed, right? And that will become abundantly clear later in the last scene when they even go and purchase spices for Jesus's body to take care of him even in his death. And yet in verse 43, it says that Joseph, it says of Joseph that he was also looking for the kingdom of God. What's implied there? What's implied is that these women were also looking for the kingdom of God. In fact, they were looking so intently for it that they had followed Jesus all the way from Galilee where they lived into Jerusalem thinking this is the time when Jesus is going to do his thing. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been looking for. And he is going to do. He is going to do it. He is going to bring his kingdom, but it's not what they thought or how they thought. The problem is they didn't think he'd do it by dying. With everything that's happening in the surrounding context, it's reasonable to assume that Jesus's death was shocking and terrifying to them. Serving was no problem for them. They were happy to do it and they did it well, but suffering, that's different. Trusting, even when it, seems like the plan is coming off the rails, well, that's scary. I don't know if I'm signing up for that. I think I've mentioned this before. My wife and I, uh, we got uh, (laughs) hooked on this show we watch sometimes called Alone. I don't know if you've seen this. The basic premise is this, they take 10 people, they put them out in like Canada somewhere, uh, far away from anyone else, they give them 10 things, they get to pick 10 survival items, and they give them some camera equipment, and they just see who can last the longest by themselves. And I find it entertaining. I don't know. Well, we were starting a new episode of it recently, and in the first episode or two, they always do these kind of, uh, I don't know, they introduce you to the characters. They introduce you to the contestants and they have footage of them back at home and they kind of show you their family or their, their, their spouse or their kids or whatever they have going on there. And, and they always shoot, have a little bit of footage of them right before they're about to leave to go out in the middle of nowhere by themselves. And so we were watching and, and in the first episode, they do this whole little spiel on this guy, uh, this big guy, I mean like big, rough, you know, tough guy. He's like ex-law enforcement or military or something, you know, he's, he's gone through it, you know, and they, they show him with his family and his friends and they're kind of having this party before he leaves and they're showing clips of him talking to his friends and he's chatting and, 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 as, he, and he's, as he's preparing to, to leave, he says to his buddies, they ask him about, well, what if there's, you know, bears or something out there? There's bears that live out there. And he says to him, oh, well, if there's a bear that comes around here, well, they're going to have to come out and, and drag the bear away. They're going to have to come out and save the bear from me, you know, and they're all kind of laughing and hanging out. Well, 
They drop him off in his, in his location, and he's walking around. Within the first maybe, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes, he finds uh, some, some evidence. Let's just call it fresh evidence of multiple bears, right? He doesn't see any bears, but there's evidence that bears had recently been there and not, had been eating in the not-too-distant past. And almost immediately, this guy begins to crumble. I mean, it's, it's, he goes back to the shore. He's got his pack on. He hasn't un- unpacked anything. And he's just sitting there, like, filming himself, debating in his head. And within, I don't know, maybe five or six hours, not even m- just past midday, he is, he's pulling out his satellite phone, calling him up. Uh, I'm tapping out. I can't do this. He hadn't even seen an actual bear or unpacked anything, and he quit. And this is my point. We can all think that we're all in, that we're ready for anything. I've got this. We're ready to go. And we can honestly think so until we see the crappy parts that are coming, right? And then what? Serving Jesus and following him sounds great. So you see with your own eyes the extent that that might lead you to. Are you willing to go there? Are you afraid of Jesus, his kingdom, his resurrection? I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you willing to, su- are you willing to identify with Jesus' suffering? Or do you want to stand off in the distance? So let's continue to the second scene. Jesus is dead. It's not surprising that he died. Crucifixion was a brutally effective at that. But it's surprising that it happened so quickly. So surprising that Pilate, who's killed plenty of people, uh, actually sends the centurion to make sure that he's actually dead already. And in fact, he is. And, and it's hours before the day of preparation, right? It's hours before uh, the day in which there would be no moving Jesus's body, that that there would be no uh, doing work or interacting with a, a dead person, right? And so Joseph, knowing that, comes to Pilate and he asks for Jesus's body. Joseph, a Pharisee, if you remember, the Pharisees are the ones who made sure that Jesus was put to death. But it says that Joseph is looking for the kingdom and he's wondering if Jesus is the guy, right? He's probably hidden the fact that he's secretly keeping track of Jesus and his teaching and what he's doing from all of his peers. But there's no way to do this in secret. There's no way to come to Pilate and ask for Jesus' body, to buy a linen shroud, and to bury him in your own tomb without everyone knowing. No doubt this would have outed him, at the very least, as a sympathizer of Jesus, if not a follower, amongst his peers who convicted him, who convicted Jesus to death. Joseph isn't just burying Jesus. What I want you to understand is he is potentially burying his earthly reputation. He's potentially burying his friends, his career, his social standing, his future wages, all of it, all of it is put at risk. Just to make sure a dead man's body isn't exposed to the elements 
for a few more hours for a day. It would have been easy, I'm sure, to tell yourself, well, I mean, he's already dead. But what's another 24 hours? It's not that big of a deal. And it says he took courage taking courage. It's the idea of bold action when you know that it will be met with resistance or opposition. That's what that phrase means. Would you risk your job? Would you risk your friends or your reputation? God's priorities are different than ours. They might even be surprising to us. And so I ask you again, are you afraid of Jesus? Are you afraid of his kingdom? Are you afraid of his resurrection? Ask yourself this, are you willing to risk your earthly kingdom? Whatever that is. Are you willing to risk your earthly kingdom? And so we move on to this last scene Scene three, the resurrection, right? Same three women as in the, the first scene are described, and they're still serving Jesus. Verse 47 tells us that they saw where Jesus was buried. They're still watching from a distance, right? And now as we enter into chapter 16, they go and get spices for his body, but the Sabbath they had ended that night. See, the Sabbath ended at sundown, and so they go after sundown, and they go and they buy spices, but it's late at night, and so they can't go and do anything. It's too dark to do that, and so they wait until the next morning. First thing in the morning, they head on the way, and as they're going, they're wondering this question, how are we going to move the stone? You would have thought that would have been something they thought about. You would have thought that would have been the first question they asked. Gosh, there's a massive stone that two women or three women can't move on their own. How are we going to get that away? But it's a little bit of a shoot first and ask questions later, right? They're, I think that their love and their devotion for Jesus is, is driving them in a way that's almost illogical, impractical even. They realize not only do these spices not actually serve any practical purpose other than just to show their love and devotion, but they have actually no practical plan for how to even use them. So they come to the tomb and they have two problems. Problem one, Jesus is dead. Problem two, they can't move the stone. And when they arrive, get this, when they arrive, they find out that both those problems have already been solved, right? The stone is gone and Jesus ain't dead. The two biggest problems in their life, poof, Jesus is taking care of it. You'd think they'd just be like, praise the Lord, hallelujah, amen. But what happens? It says the angel tells them, go tell the disciples, tell Peter, tell Peter. What a sweet fact. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter, no, I don't know him, I don't know him. The rooster crows, he's weeping. And here, the, God has the angel specifically say, go tell the disciples, but go tell Peter. 
Go back home to Galilee. Jesus is going to meet you there, he says. And they left and they celebrated and they told everyone as they skipped and danced the, the good news. Now that's not exactly what happened, right? It says they left and they were terrified and they told no one because they were afraid. And then that's the end. When they saw the kind of power that Jesus possesses, his answers to their problems turn out to be scarier than the problems themselves. Do you get this? They came with with two problems, two huge problems, and Jesus' answer actually scared them more than the problems. All of us come to Jesus with problems. You got problems. I got problems. Like, we all got problems. Life has problems. Mistakes we've made, mistakes others have made that affect us, things we don't know, things we don't understand, things we just can't stop doing or can't get out of, issues, conflicts, problems, scary problems, problems that make us afraid about what will happen in our future, in the days, in the weeks, in the years to come. And we come to Jesus looking for answers. How am I supposed to move this stone? How am I supposed to move it? But when Jesus answers that problem quite unexpectedly, when he answers it with his resurrection power, we find ourselves more frightened about the solution than we were ever about the problem. Whatever problem you bring here this morning, are you sure that if Jesus actually answered that, not, in, not, in, not necessarily in the way that, that you think it ought to be answered, but in the way that the God of the universe, the creator of everything, knows it ought to be answered. Are you quite sure that that solution wouldn't scare you more than the problem? Friends, the biggest stone in, in, in our lives is, is our own sin. The biggest stone in, in Our lives is our own rebellious heart. The Bible says that we've all sinned and that the wages of that sin is death. So the biggest stone is death itself. And the only thing that every human being deserves based on their own actions and lives by itself is death. That's our biggest problem. And it's the problem Jesus answered that morning at the tomb. When he overcame death, when he moved away the stone and he declared that he has won victory over death once and for all, for all of his people. If Jesus has the power to overcome death, What doesn't he have the power over? If Jesus has the power to rise again, what does he not have the power to rise above? If he can move that stone in my life, then he has the authority to move or rearrange or reprioritize anything in my life that he wants to. 
But when the angel told them, when the angel told those three women what Jesus wanted them to do, they didn't do it. They were afraid. You don't think you'd been afraid? What do you think? If you were there that morning. If Jesus really did move the biggest stone in your life, whatever that is right now. If he, if he has solved your biggest problem, then there is nothing that he can't ask you to do. If he has that much power, then he is totally and utterly the authority over you. So let me ask you this. Are you willing to obey whatever he asks? Are you willing to do that? I think back through these scenes, both the women and Joseph, they were looking for something. What are you looking for this morning? And what Jesus does and what he brings turns out to be totally different and completely unimaginable. And friends, that is scary. It is. And the story ends and it's something of a cliffhanger. And I think it intentionally leaves us unsettled. I think Mark's intention to his audience is to leave the story unsettled so that they might think, what about me? Will I be afraid? But friends, if the gospel is true, that because of your sinful rebellion, you deserve God's wrath and death. If the gospel's true, that you can't do anything to fix that problem in the slightest on your own. If the gospel is true, that Jesus died the death you deserve, satisfying God's wrath against you. If the gospel is true, that he was buried, totally dead, but emerged from the grave, totally alive, claiming victory over death and guaranteeing your salvation. If the gospel is true, friends, that Jesus is truly the authority and the king over everything. If the gospel is true, that Jesus, the king, did that for you, the rebel. There's nothing he can't ask you to endure. There's nothing he can't ask you to sacrifice. There's nothing he can't ask you to obey. And that is scary. Is it not? And we're looking into this empty tomb and we realize everything is going to change. That nothing is going to be the same. That there's no going back. How can we take courage like Jesus or like Joseph did? How can we have bold action in the face of resistance and opposition like Joseph did? I think the secret to Joseph's courage is that above all else, his eyes were set on the person of Jesus Christ. That above every other priority, every other desire, every other thing in his life, all that he could see is the body of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. And he said, no, I cannot stand for that. I will sacrifice everything for him. I will risk everything. Because it's worth it because of who he is and what he's done. You see, courage, friends, it comes from Christ. It comes from Christ. Those moments of fear before I got married, 
You know where the courage came from? When I turned my eyes and my heart to my wife, to my future wife, who she was, her beauty, her wonder, her grace, her love. didn't mean that I had any idea what it would mean for my life or what would happen. It was worth a risk for her. For her. I didn't need to know. See, courage isn't found somewhere deep in yourself. We don't invent it out of thin air or speak it into existence. We don't just pretend we've got it. It's found in the one who wasn't surprised that he had to die. It's found in the one who was willing to bear the cross for us. It's found in the one who has the power to defeat death. It's found in the one, mm, it's found in the hope that we have that since Jesus rose from the dead, we can be confident that regardless of what happens in this life, he, we will rise too with him. To the degree which you see his beauty and his majesty and his grace and his love and his worth. It's the degree to which all the other cares fade away by comparison. See, it's not that our fears in this life become less. It's not that suddenly things aren't scary. It's that he becomes more. So we preached through all of the book of Mark. I hope that you've read through it with us as well. And I feel confident now that I've gone through the whole book, I feel confident to say that I think that the second half of Mark chapter 8 is really the central idea of the entire gospel, the entire book. The thing in which the whole story revolves, and I want to read it for you, as we close, it says this. And he, Jesus, asked them, the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what, pro what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Let's pray.